Hi, this is Sam Chamberlain, and welcome to Things to Ponder, the sermon podcast from St. Mary's United Church of Christ in Silver Run, Maryland. Follow along with St. Mary's at stmarysucc.org or on Facebook and Instagram. Wishing you peace and good, my friends. This last line of the psalm always resonates so deeply in my soul, and I pray that it resonates in yours as well. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And it always feels like the act of preaching. Yes, it is the words of my heart, but I pray that as I speak, the meditations of your heart together might be acceptable to God. And so friends, thank you for being here and for listening. We continue with our series, Look Up, week two of four, looking into and asking some questions that far from obscuring our faith actually can provide some clarity for it. In a season and in a world where we are so committed to navel-gazing, to just staring at our belly button as if we're the only person, the only thing in the world that nothing else exists, what we're being invited to do constantly by our faith is to look up. And in looking up often brings about the idea of wonder, to wonder at what it is that God is doing in the world and to ask questions about what it is that God is doing in the world. And when we ask the right questions, we tend to find answers that move us along. Never, hardly ever answers that, that drill us to a place, but continue to give us life. Last week, we started with this stepping off point of faith, the most fundamental and basic thing about us. We talked about it in the context of baptism. We read the story of Jesus' baptism where the heavens are tore open and Jesus hears the words, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And we heard that in our own baptisms, God has done the exact same thing. Ripped open the heavens, claimed you as his own and said, you are my beloved child, with you I am well pleased. And that is the most important thing and most truest thing about you as you sit here right now. But the question to come out of that is what does that mean? Who am I? And from there, we can begin to craft a life. That is the question I want to tackle today. What is this life that we are crafting? What do we go from there? To be the beloved child of God is a wonderful and beautiful thing, but it's got to go somewhere. And here's the thesis for the whole sermon today. And some of you go, oh no, he said the word thesis. Hang in there for a second. How we form a faithful life, what God is calling us to do, how Jesus wants us to interact with him, the model we are given for a faithful life, following in the footsteps of Jesus, is that of the disciple. I will say that again. The model we are given for a faithful life after Jesus Christ is disciple. There is no other model we are given in the scriptures for what it looks like to be a faithful Christ follower. Church membership, not a good model. Being a good or moral person, not a good model. The only image in the entirety of the New Testament is that of a disciple. Used 250 times in the New Testament, where the word Christian is only used three, it is Jesus' final instruction As he's ascending into heaven, he says, go and make disciples. Now, some of us might hear that in a context where it's like, make, that sounds kind of manufacturing-esque. Well, no, it's not making in terms of an assembly line, but it is making in the sense of form, 
allowed to grow, allowed to develop. A disciple, this image of disciple might make the most sense, might make more sense to us at least, in terms of a teacher-student relationship. In Jesus' culture, a disciple, oh excuse me, you were selected to be the disciple of a rabbi. A rabbi would be a teacher, an elder, somebody who's older and, and experienced. And they would take on students and they would call these students disciples. And a rabbi would be your teacher and you would sit at their feet, yes, and you would absorb their teaching. But it wasn't just you went to class, it really was you followed them around, you were a part of their life. You would observe their life and how those teachings manifested themselves in relationships with others and in relationship to the world. So disciple goes beyond just sort of learning things. It goes outside of the bounds of a school or a teacher. It's really kind of like an apprenticeship, but an apprenticeship that never really ends. But the idea, the deep idea about discipleship is that by hearing the teaching and walking in the way of a teacher, embodying the life of your teacher, you take in those lessons, and then over time you become like the teacher. That is the only image we are given in the New Testament for what it means to be a believer. Now while the rabbi-disciple relationship comes to us out of a specific religious and cultural context, we don't at least not in our particular culture, our religious culture. We don't call anybody rabbi. Others do. We don't do that. It comes out of a particular context, but it speaks to something much larger about our culture, and it speaks to something that's true of all of humanity. And here's the point. All of us, friends, are discipled by something. All of us. Discipleship is not something we choose. It's part of what we are as people. I don't care if you're a believer or not. I don't care if you're a good person or not. I don't care if you're a Christian or not. Every one of us walks in the light of something else. And we absorb those teachings, we take them into our bodies, and we live our lives in light of those teachings. It was Bob Dylan. He said, you're all going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And we all do. The cool thing about acknowledging this, that we're all discipled by something, is that it opens up all kinds of wonderful questions about ourselves and what it is that shapes us. What has made us who we are? Not the least of which is the deep reservoir of capacity that each of us has to be made into something beautiful. If we're all being discipled, we are all capable of being disciples because we are the beloved children of God. Every one of us has the capacity to grow and to become more than what we are. What we are is beautiful. What we are becoming, Paul says, no eye has seen nor ear heard nor human imagination and vision what God has prepared for those who love him. It's this wonderful message that we all still have somewhere to go. The struggle and the problem, of course, is that our world is in a chaotic, I use that word very carefully, a chaotic era of discipleship. It is chaos because all of us are being discipled by things that aren't worthy of being our rabbis. We are discipled by social media and the news. We are discipled by corporate policy. We are often discipled by our checkbooks and our Venmo accounts. Sometimes we are discipled by a kind of religion. Even religion can be an unhealthy form of discipleship. We are discipled by pop culture, sports, 
entertainment, celebrity. We are discipled, many of us, by brands. All of us are being discipled, and all of us have things that are speaking to our lives in ways that aren't worthy of our following. Now, let me slow up for a second. Now, hear the problem. It's not that we participate in these things. That's not what I'm saying at all. Please don't hear me saying, you know, if you're a, dev- a devotee of a sports team, you're being discipled by the wrong thing. Now, I'll stand you right here and tell you the Detroit Red Wings are the greatest team, greatest hockey team God ever invented. It's not that we participate in these things. We can hardly do otherwise unless we are called to completely detach from society. And I'm looking around and none of you seem to have that call. So we all participate in society. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that often we choose to allow these things to inform the deepest parts of ourselves. Our sense of identity, our sense of purpose, our sense of health and well-being. Our entire lives, friends, are a constantly swirling and changing landscape of discipleship. And so, if we are serious about being disciples of Christ as beloved children of God, committed to living in a Christ-like way, then the question we always have to be asking ourselves is, what is the lens through which we understand our lives? In other words, and this is the question for today, what is discipling us? What is discipling us? You do not have to look hard to find things, again, that will seek to disciple you. But underneath of it all, in little spaces like this, all across the world, congregations make some proposals about what healthy discipleship in the world might look like. In fact, one of the ways that we might describe the Bible This folks ask all the time, well, what is it? Well, it's a lot of things. But one of the things that it is, it is an ongoing dialogue of discipleship, sometimes successful and sometimes failed. We see as many examples in the scriptures of people who were discipled by the wrong things as we do people who were discipled by the right things. I mean, goodness, even the apostles discipled by Jesus found that there were other influences in their lives that at times ran deeper than their commitment to Jesus. But it's an ongoing dialogue of what we ought to be discipled by. The answers aren't always clear, but today the Bible proposes a few answers to us. In the readings that are assigned for the day, this works out beautifully. They are not all-encompassing, but they are certainly varied and diverse, speaking in different ways to different people and even perhaps to different parts of ourselves. We get three ways of being discipled today. I promise we'll go through them quickly. Just want to give you the question so that you can ask them of yourselves. The first story, which and I was having, I was, we were, Rachel and I were laughing, finding Nehemiah in the Bible is a bit of a pain in the rear if you don't have a table of contents. The story of Nehemiah, which doesn't get read all that often, is one of my favorite stories actually in all of Scripture, because it's the story of how are we discipled when we're trying to rebuild ourselves. The people of Israel had experienced collapse and the loss of their identity multiple times. And perhaps you've experienced that kind of loss and collapse from time to time as well. Our whole society is kind of feeling this sense of rebuild. And Nehemiah feels the call from God to go and to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. He's living elsewhere, but he feels like, you know what? We've got to go back and we've got to rebuild what's up. And the question that Nehemiah asks is constantly, how do we rebuild this? The whole story of Nehemiah is a story of hope, courage, and no small amount of risk. 
But our reading today calls us back to the basics of what rebuilding looks, all, looks like. The people of the city are to go back, to build it back. And here, in the middle of our text, as the walls have begun to rise, you can imagine this huge work scene as the city is being rebuilt. The walls are starting to go up. So also are the stories of faith beginning to be retold. And it's the scribe Ezra who brings the people together in a solemn assembly. It's not just he's out at the town square yelling stuff to people. He calls all the people together in a solemn assembly. And it says that Ezra brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could hear with understanding. And they read the law, a law which hadn't been read in hundreds of years by the assembled people. You can imagine what that felt like. Some of us last April experienced that when we got to come back inside the building for the first time in was a year. That's a small, small experience of what the people of Israel went through. The gathered assembly heard the stories of faith. These stories of faith which were as essential as the walls and streets that were being built around them. The community of faith gathered to listen to the scriptures as a place where their discipleship could begin again. Friends, the stories of our faith, heard collectively and shared faithfully, are a primary place for discipleship to grow. To put it bluntly, in discipleship, church matters. The assembled gathering, hearing the stories of our faith, and sharing them one with another is one of the first places that we go, whether it's as a small child or as somebody who's been here, was baptized here and has been here forever. The community of faith gathered is one of the first places that we're invited to go to be discipled, to hear the truth about ourselves. Now, as much as a community can be built up, anybody who's been in church life knows, sometimes it goes sideways, right? It don't always, it, it, there, is nothing, there is nothing linear about the life of faith. And 1 Corinthians is a story of a fledgling church gone really awkwardly and weirdly sideways. You read the first couple chapters of 1 Corinthians. You come back and tell me what you find. But the question they're asking is not how we build this. They're in the middle of that. Their question, this new movement of faith, is saying, what do we do with all this? And they cannot get it right. For those of us who get frustrated with church, it's okay. Every church in the scriptures got it wrong at some point. The story of Corinthians is the story of a community struggling precisely with what will disciple them and how they, shall re- they, how they will relate to one another. In the beginning of Corinthians, there was Paul discusses that there are these factions that are building up inside the church. Some say, I belong to Apollos, who was a teacher. Others are saying, I belong to Cephas or Peter. That No, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter. Other people are saying, well, I'm better than all of you because I follow Jesus. In other words, celebrity culture in the first century. And with all of these things swirling around, senses of holiness, sinfulness, struggles, celebrities, people feeling like they're better than one another because they've got the better teacher, Paul comes to them and says, whatever, y'all are one. Every time you make a division, Paul says, you've created a problem for your own discipleship, your own growth and formation. Do you not know that each of you are part of the body of Christ and we can't cause pain in one without the whole body feeling pain? 
Do you not know that we can't have one point of celebration in the body without the whole body feeling celebration? And so when we create divisions, when we try to cut each other off, when we try to elevate ourselves above another, it does nothing but damage our own discipleship because we are connected to one another. Discipleship then, in Paul's mind, always takes into account the needs, concerns, and perspectives of our neighbors first. It's always about how we're connected to each other. And a healthy church, a good church, a church with a good sort of scaffolding around it, is designed and commissioned to protect that. We care for our neighbors because when we care for our neighbors, we ultimately are caring for ourselves. To put that bluntly, how we think about our neighbors matters to our discipleship. But then we come finally and fully to the peak of it all. Some of you are saying, Sam, you talk about discipleship all the time. You haven't mentioned Jesus. I'm coming to Jesus. Because here in this gospel reading, after his temptation, remember Jesus is baptized, and then he goes into the wilderness for 40 days, and he's tempted by the devil. And after that, he comes back into town, and he starts going around the towns, and he participates in their liturgies. And on this particular day, he is invited to and stands up to speak. Now, the custom for synagogue worship at that time, because there was no temple, was for the teacher, the person of the day, and often this was often a shared work. There wasn't one person who would do it all the time. But the custom was for the teacher to stand up, to read whatever it is they wanted, and then to offer some kind of reflection or explanation. They were often a sermon. They didn't call it that, but that's what it was. And Jesus, he's handed the book of Isaiah, and he finds this particular passage We've read it once, but I'll give you the highlights again. It says, God has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, release of the captives, sight to the blind, oppress go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. In this way, see that Jesus does exactly what Ezra does. Takes the law, climbs up, and reads the law for the gathered assembly. He takes the law and brings it to the community, shares this story of faith inside the gathered assembly. In the same way, he does what Paul does. He announces good news, jubilee, joy, and salvation that comes from being linked to our neighbors because all the good news that Isaiah lays out is about being connected to our neighbors, something good happening to those who are marginalized, oppressed, and sick. He takes all of these discipleship traditions, bring them into himself, and says, he has anointed me. But here's the thing, Jesus doesn't do what he's supposed to do. Jesus is supposed to give the sermon, and he doesn't. He just goes and sits down. I love this. It's such a flex by Jesus. He's like, I'm going to go sit. So what does everybody do? They're all looking at him like, this is awkward. Um, Do your job, teacher. And he waits, and he waits, and he waits. And then he says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus doesn't say, I'm going to give you the sermon. Jesus says, I am the sermon. I am the sermon. My entire life and my entire mission is what God is doing in the world. And to participate in that, what God is doing, is to participate in me. And the invitation is implied. Come along. Come along. 
Three different ways of discipleship. The community matters, our neighbors matter, and Jesus. And, if we all, if, and so if we want to grow, if we actually think that being the beloved child of God is true about us and that God has something wonderful and beautiful planned for us, if we want a faith that is living and active, that challenges us and consoles us, that lifts us up and humbles us, Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Here's the thing, friends. Jesus is not going to come along as a sidekick to our political or our personal ambitions. Jesus comes to us as bread in a meal, inviting others to come along. There's always a space. That's how discipleship with Jesus works. Jesus will not, will not submit to the templates and the mores of our culture. He will only come to us as our companion and as our master, as our rabbi, as our teacher. Jesus will come to us in the context of prayer, of worship, of community. Jesus will appear to us as our na- in our neighbors as we see him at work in our neighbors. The challenge for us then is to participate in these things, to be aware that this is how God shapes us, and then to always question and make sure that we're not imposing boundaries or limits onto Jesus, or to try to get Jesus to be some sort of a totem for, our, for beliefs that are actually more important to us. So if we're asking Jesus, so if when we talk about Jesus, but we've actually got to talk about a political c- category first, we're not being discipled by Jesus, we're being discipled by our politics. If we're asking questions about money and all that, before we ask the question about what Jesus is doing, then we're discipled by that and not by Jesus. But what Jesus is saying is, I want to get deeper than all the other things. I want to, have, I want to shape you more than all those other things. Jesus will not submit to the boxes we try to put on him. He will change the things about us if we let him. If we impose something on Jesus, we'll not grow. But if we say, Jesus, I simply want to follow you because today all this good stuff is fulfilled in your hearing. Today we heard the law shared in the context of a community. Today we heard that we are connected one to another. That's what I want to be shaped by. Friends, Jesus wants to be alive in his beloved children. Do we trust him enough to be discipled by that first and foremost? And so let us always be questioning. Again, we participate in society. We all have perspectives and opinions. All of that is true and good. We have experiences that shape us. All of that is true and good. But beneath it all, is that Jesus has called us to his side and Jesus might rearrange all of those things not to break us down, but that we might become our best and truest selves. So friends, I'll ask you again, hoping that the question will grow us, not always the answers. Let us leave and to consider carefully for the road that lies ahead of us. What is it that is discipling us? Amen. Amen.